Right, thank you very much and good morning everyone and it's great to see so many people here. Thank you very much for coming on this fantastic sunny morning actually, so it's very tempting to stay outside. I want to begin in fact this morning by thinking about a couple of widely reported incidents in the press this summer, both of which involve language and language change and both of which present interesting issues for the way in which we think about and record language history. Here then, also raising issues about what we might um, expect dictionaries to do, for example, and we know the kind of words, what meanings we might expect dictionaries to include, and raising issues too, I think, for what is, or perhaps what should be, included in writing histories of the language, where history and attitudes to history and history writing and language, as you'll see, can prove very mutable objects indeed. The first news item I thought we'd look at involves the Leveson inquiry. Here, though, focusing, of course, in the way of historians of the language, not on press intrusion and phone hacking, but on what for, for linguists is the far more interesting issue of David Cameron's use of the word lol. So this, as in my slide, uh, was the subject of a range of articles. So we've got here The Guardian in May this year, David Cameron exchanged up to two text messages a week with Rebecca Brooks during the last general election campaign, often signing off with DC or sometimes lol, until she explained that the latter phrase meant laugh out loud and not lots of love. And so, and here's also um, the Daily Telegraph from um, the, the other side of the political spectrum and focusing with a very similar slant on the same issue. Oh dear, oh dear me, it begins, as we can see. And the Leveson inquiry um, heard that David Cameron sometimes signed his text messages to Rebecca Brooks with lol, which he apparently intended to mean one thing, but, as she pointed out, meant another. So in both of these, these are quite interesting for linguists because we've got an issue of language and meaning, of usage and potential confusion. Lol for Rebecca Brooks means one thing, and for David Cameron, another. There's a sense too, which is interesting, of an implied right or dominant meaning. Lol equals laugh out loud, with the laugh here in this, these and a range of other articles clearly being placed on David Cameron. And there's also a sense of a delegitimized or minority meaning, lol not meaning then lots of love, in spite of the Prime Minister's own usage. As, the, as in the oh dear, oh dear me, with which the Daily Telegraph article begins. So lol is really interesting because by such articles, it's placed in the political and linguistic foreground. It becomes a site of confusion and miscommunication. And, an all, and, and perhaps this is an all too apt image for the Leveson inquiry in itself. So lol on these grounds, um, is also clearly a word which we might say would seem to demand inclusion in a dictionary, in a record of ongoing history of where English is going. If dictionaries provide reference models of language, if they act as repositories of information in line with their status as what we, should, what we assume to be neutral truth-telling texts, then lols should arguably also, and legitimately, be part of their remit. Yet here too, however, there can clearly be conflict, as my next slide illustrates. 
So as you can see, this one is taken from the Washington Post, um, though many similar articles are available. And as you can see, it, it doesn't like lol at all. So, and we get this very trenchant opening. Stop it, Oxford English Dictionary. OMG, lol, heart, no, you see. And <laughs> you can see these imperative, prescribing or condemning the kinds, these kinds of acts of lexicographical inclusion. Lol, whatever Cameron might think it means, should, this writer argues, by no means go into a dictionary such as the OED. And the OED, as you know, records language history from the beginning, focusing really 1150, but right to the present day, to the now of language. But for this writer, um, you can see a variety of analogies are provided to illustrate just how inappropriate the writer sees including lol in a work like the OED actually is. And, and you know, you can, you can see the, the grandmother insists on using slang, or worse, like the grandmother wearing glittery makeup and jeggings, you know. So this idea about incongruity, raising all sorts of issues about what we expect a dictionary to be. And these issues of decorum or appropriacy of language or inappropriacy of the kind of words that the OED seems to be including is right at the centre of the, the debate that was often foregrounded in articles like this. And, you know, in particular with this highly bizarre image of Yoda as Star Wars sage sexting, and it is far too early in the morning to go into this at all, so moving very swiftly on at this point. So, so in language history then, and in documenting language history, dictionaries are as this writer proclaims, or perhaps, you know, as they argue, um, it should be, they should be the home of the venerable, the long-established, the polite, you know, those, as the writer says, it's supposed to enshrine the words that actually mean things. So, via David Cameron, very usefully for me, um, we come neatly to one of the main issues of dictionaries and dictionary making, and the images of conflicted identity these often present in terms of popular response to dictionaries, language and history. For the writer of the Washington Post article, new words such as lol are by de definition not to be on in the dictionary, which is, they argue, an artifact of national and cultural history. And it should then, they also argue, act as a repository only of legitimate language, the best words, the dignified words of language. With the unfortunate result, though, for David Cameron, if we follow this trajectory through to its logical conclusion, that even if he tries to look up lol in the dictionary and find out how he should sign off his letters to Rebecca Brooks, he won't be able to find what lol means anyway and will be doomed to a life of linguistic infelicity in this respect. So lol, at least in the Washington Post, if not in the OED itself, is given a as a word that, rather than possessing different meanings or different uses, and we can see this is actually the OED entry for lol, the disputed one, um, which we'll go back to, and this is just to show you what an ongoing language history in the OED looks like. For the Washington Post writer, this word has no meaning. It does not possess meaning. It's denied status as language and lexeme alike. But as you can see in the OED entry, it's actually got different senses and it's also got different forms. It's um, an interjection and also um, a noun. 
Um, but the Washington Post um, article is also very interesting for my purposes in the um, associated, very common underlying actually assumption, actually I'll go back to that one for a minute, um, about the idea about deserving to be in the dictionary. So just because people use these words doesn't mean they deserve to be in the dictionary. And that's another very interesting idea. So for language historians, popular response to language like this can raise lots of very interesting issues. And law, as I've said, can be placed at the centre of popular debates here, for my purposes, which can centre on language change, um, on ongoing history, and also about our response to ongoing history. Um, language change, for example, whether we like it or not, is something in which we are all implicated. A living language is of necessity a site of change. We might think about recent Olympic discourse, which also got quite a lot of media comment, where we had forms like PB, um, personal best, um, assuming a lot of currency over the summer. So not only is noun, his or her PB, but also as a verb, to PB, wherever, whenever I PB, as I tracked over the summer, being a very, very common construction. Whereas medal too, had what would Shakespeare would, uh, when, when we look at Shakespeare's usage, we call a zero conversion. Medal also became a verb. It moved from noun to verb. He meddled, she meddled. And reading the newspapers last week, for any other Guardian readers out there, you would have noticed lots of discussion over the last couple of weeks about other new words. I particularly like sock puppetry, actually, on sock puppeting, entries which are not, in fact, in the OED yet, and which is the art of writing favourable posts about your own work on Amazon, and also posting negative comments about other people's work, all under an assumed name, so the art of sock puppetry, uh, got a lot of discussion. Or on Monday, uh, another column full of anxiety about confusion, negative change, by which words like procrastinate and prevaricate seem to be blurring their semantic territory, or reticent and reluctant. We seem, as speakers, profoundly conscious of language and language change. And we often also seem to take it very personally when words and meanings don't behave as we expect them to or as we desire they should. Yet, in terms of language history, taking the long view, it's clear that only languages without speakers will, in reality, fail to change. In living language, instead, history slowly accrues every single day as changes ebb and flow. Yet, in what is a very common image about dictionaries' identity, we often seem to expect dictionaries, or lexicographers really, to act as kind of border guards, cordoning off certain forms against others by the act of inclusion or by the kind of definitions which are or are not provided. In models like this, then, the dictionary is, indeed, as in my title, made the intended home only of best words, and hard words in ways that, ways that raise a variety of interesting questions. For instance, if dictionaries and histories of the language tell narratives, tell stories about the past, including the very recent past, should it then mean that there are indeed some forms of history that shouldn't be included? If so, in what way and why? Where does the dictionary maker draw the line? If the facts of usage are there, 
should the dictionary maker really censor the kind of stories which emerge? Or in what way should they shape them? Where is the limit of the power of the dictionary maker in telling the story or the historian of the language in exactly the same way? And, and if they do try and shape history, is there an effect? Is there a real-world change as a result of it? Can the dictionary maker control language as the writer of the Washington Post seems to imply. So this idea about the relationship of the history writer to language and the dictionary maker to the language that they record can be very interesting. For example, even if you don't yourself use law, it's surely ostrich-like to deny its existence or its right to inclusion in a dictionary, for example. For the, for the Oxford English Dictionary, moreover, which originally saw its role as kind of like a, a national biography of words. It intended to write the life history of words, record their birth and also their death. Um, does this mean, by extension, that some words kind of deserve biographies, like the lexical equivalents of Shakespeare, Plath and Wolfe, for example, but others don't, and which, just like in the Washington Post article, some words should have, well, should really just get decorous silence instead of a biography, really. Or perhaps euthanasia, or, or maybe execution in a public way, which is maybe what's going on in that Washington Post article in the beginning. So in thinking about words and the acts of representation they receive, um, a number of questions are usefully pushed into the foreground, and they can make us think quite hard about language and whose language, meaning and whose meaning, as well as the levels of representativeness. How representative should a dictionary be, a language history? And what kind of representation should be given? So, and a related idea, which is also very clear in that Washington Post article, is this, as I've said, about deserving inclusion, meriting, meriting inclusion, which places um, the real sort of agenda on notions of quality, back to best words, rather than quantity or empiricism. Um, and the dictionary is also, if you've seen, given ideally as a text that kind of enshrines language and suggesting then a rhetoric, giving a, a static artefact in which reverence and respect are prime. Notions which are easily accorded perhaps to some words, and we could think about some classic Shakespeare, King Lear's unburthened crawl towards death, say, um, where unburthened is a word we tend to think, yes, that's got to be in a dictionary. But clearly far less easily, as this and related articles are concerned, for words like lol, where we, we tend to have issues with this idea, do we enshrine lol in a dictionary? And, you know, if you can track all this on the web, if you put lol, OED, you will get hundreds of articles on a similar line here. So this little word lol, then, and it's used in 2012, usefully allows us to approach these sorts of questions, wider questions about language, identity, and dictionaries, and what we expect them to do and to be. Is a dictionary a reference model per se? Or should it be a reference model of a kind of qualitatively best language? Even if that best language might be very remote from what real speakers actually do. I haven't met many real speakers who talk about crawling unburthened towards death. But I have met lol quite a lot. So in terms of empiricism, for example, lol might have the edge quantitatively. But nevertheless, language users tend to prefer unburthened. So as a word that definitely should be in the dictionary. 
or in a very different model of history writing and dictionary making, as in the other bit of my title, are dictionaries really to do, are, are they really just inventories? Do they just list the contents of a language in which LOL, alongside OMG, and maybe also heart as a symbol, but meaning love um, or like, must take their place too as part of ongoing history and change in response to evidence and evidence of the language actually in use. And for a further um, example, another snapshot maybe, just to give you another which we'll, one we'll pick up through the lecture, another example of conflicted meaning and change in progress. We could go to this one, again associated with David Cameron. So, though this time merely in reporting his actions. So this is actually the Times um, in 2009 stating that David Cameron appeared discomforted by questions about why he was one of the 13 privately educated members of the Shadow Cabinet. But what was interesting for my, for my purposes here was another column within a week called The Pedant in The Times appeared. And as this stressed, discomfort does not mean to make uncomfortable, but it means to rout or overwhelm. And then it added an intended exculpation of this particular article our only excuse for using this sense was that the meaning is common. And so, so as for law, meaning, usage, history, and ongoing change, again become a site of conflict and concern. Tellingly, language practice, what speakers do in using language, is intentionally separated from what they ought to do. Um, and this can be quite perplexing for dictionaries and language historians. You end up kind of stuck in the middle, really. So um, here then, the meta-language in um, the pedant column was prescriptive and proscriptive. We shouldn't use it to mean this. And the quantitative, the empirical, the weight of evidence was cast aside, as I said. Our only excuse is that the meaning is common. Where commonness equals frequency, somehow inexorably seem to be moving into commonness equals vulgar, an image of them and not us. So within a single week and a single newspaper, discomfort then is used in what is acknowledged to be an extremely common meaning, in which it seems synonymous with discomfort, while also, at least in principle, also being sharply severed from discomfort, whose meaning it is by no means to be allowed to approach. So if you had to write a dictionary entry or a language history based on information like this, you would find yourself trapped in what might seem an irreconcilable dilemma. So at this point, we might turn, I think, to think more widely about dictionaries, their history and language history, as a way of trying to resolve some of these questions that I've been raising so far. Early dictionaries, you might be concerned to find, um, did indeed, in a much narrower focus, centre on hard words and best words alone. So, and this is the title page of the very first monolingual English dictionary, written by Cordry in 1604. And as he says here, his dictionary is going to contain and teach true writing of hard, usual English words, words borrowed from all these learned languages. 
And it's quite, it's quite interesting, particularly for women. I was cheered to note, actually, as well, so it's good. I have been immeasurably helped through my career by this book, so, which contains 2,500 words, actually. So, we, you know, it, it is definitely selective on its best words here. So, so if you're starting out writing a dictionary here, as Caudry is, this is the beginning of the dictionary tradition, a monolingual dictionary tradition in English, what we can see is that he sees the dictionary as something which is directed to unskillful speakers, where unskillfulness, the thing he aims to remedy, focuses on sorting out the gaps in knowledge of hard words and best words, and particularly here then, the thousands of loanwords which were being borrowed into English as part of the Renaissance. So in fact, interestingly, it's change the shifting patterns of language in time, which actually acted as a spur or an impetus to the kind of monolingual dictionary making which first emerges in our language. And in fact, what he does is kind of translate or mediate between hard words and plain English, as he terms it, um, in the act of um, defining or interpreting words. So you get new learned hard and best words like abdicate, which was a very difficult word at the time, which is explained using plain English like put away, while another difficult hard best word is abhor, and that was just translated in the dictionary as hate, and you get a romance loan word, pensive, which is explained as sorrowful, then a native compound of sorrow plus full. So, and as Caudry also points out, these, this kind of explanation, this kind of like a cultural translation between different levels of language, is particularly vital for the unskillful, who might otherwise, in fact, he feared, find themselves virtually disenfranchised. Why would you have a word reliable? Now, looking back at that, you think, well, what... But actually, so again, when you contextualise past anxieties in terms of the present, you think, and why were they so worried about that one? That's quite interesting. So that, so that was one of the ones where they were saying, right, in writing the inventory of English, even a word like, God forbid, reliable must be included in the dictionary, as indeed it was, you see. So um, it became part of the inventory, and now it seems to us entirely unremarkable, um, just as precarious, again, has changed. So the idea is that what truly mattered in this kind of conception of history and dictionary making was evidence, so, and it's impartial, objective rec reporting. So, um, and in fact, you can go to behind the scenes um, letters between the editors of the Oxford English Dictionary at the time, and they're like, well, I don't use reliable. I'm sure you don't either, but we'll have to put it in, you see. And it is that kind of thing. You have to distance yourself from your personal predilections, your subjectivities about usage. Whatever you did yourself as a lexicographer, must be removed from the actual dictionary. So, um, as for Lol, then, it's the relationship of historian to critic in writing language history which is made key. While, as the history of the OED confirms, in fact, we can go to some other behind the scenes information, quite funny. Um, this is Lol's forebear, I always feel. This is advertisemental, which was put into um, the dictionary by James Murray, the very first editor of the OED, and um, he got lots of outrage letters. And the, there are lots of his responses collected in the Bodleian, which are very, very entertaining. And you can see him here saying, well, you don't like advertisemental, but I like it as 
well as testamental, monumental, ornamental, governmental, fundamental, or any other mental, you know. So, and the important thing, though, he said, was the dictionary doesn't tell you you've got to say it. All it does is record the fact that such has been said. So Murray's letter then forcefully points out the difference between evidence and opinion, fact and fiction for the dictionary maker, for the writer of history. If the evidence is there, it has to be recorded. So, uh, so according to the evidence at his disposal, Murray had simply defined advertismental descriptively and objectively as pertaining to advertising and provided a range of quotations which empirically, evidence again, confirmed its existence and use. So modern dictionaries then still work on this model, moving towards the inventory rather than the best words. And modern readers can still protest, as in another letter to the Times, and I really hope the writer of this isn't in the room. Um, so <laughs> every time I use this slide, I'm, I'm expecting this. I'm like, I wrote this letter. But it's a very interesting letter because it's, again, about what we expect dictionaries to do in this collision between popular attitudes to language and language change and what dictionary makers and history writers must do in terms of facts and evidence. And this is, again, where somebody sadly replaced their fifth edition of the Concise Oxford News Dictionary, which sadly fell apart, and had to buy a new version, but the initial pleasure, as you can see, swiftly disappears because <gasps> it records new words and new changes. Look, you know, a number of incorrect usages, such as comprised of rather than comprised, on the ground that they've become common. Is this just like lol again? You see, it's the same story again and again. So, uh, as you can see here, the writer really wants the lexicographer to be like Johnson, to lash the wind, you know, to say, no, challenge it. Don't put these words in on the basis that actually the language will change as a result, but this isn't what happened. Dictionary makers actually are scurrying behind language, trying to keep up. Language writers, language history writers like myself, are in the same process. We're always trying to keep pace with language change rather than standing in ahead of it and deflecting it, actually. So, um, so there's lots of attempts in popular discourse, in Johnson's words, to lash the wind, to, turn, to want to turn dictionaries backwards rather than engaging with an ongoing history of which we are all part. Reality, as Johnson, of course, realised so long ago, is necessarily, or maybe sadly, very different. Um, the tide of language can't be stilled. The dictionary maker has to be a witness, not a dictator. And as such, dictionaries and their makers have to follow where change and evolution lead. Hence the careful documentation for words like long in the OED, in its different senses. Or indeed, another word, I thought just to give you a heart attack a bit, you know, sort of more force here, words like girl, girl, so which also appeared in the OED and also triggers a whole set of popular responses like that's not a word, etc, etc. But it is based on lots of evidence for it, as you can see here. And so dictionaries today then trying to document change in progress, history as it happens, as well as the ongoing life, of course, of words like serendipity and harmonious and avuncular precarious um, in a wide-ranging and all-encompassing democracy of words. Thank you. <laughs>